turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. Everyone who has been a Christian for a few years knows about Daniel. We know about the rejection of the king's meat in chapter 1. We know about his interpretation of the king's dream in chapter 2. We know about the fiery furnace in chapter 3. We know about the writing on the wall in chapter 5. And of course, we know about the lion's den in chapter 6. All five of those stories come in the very first six chapters, but there's still much more to the book of Daniel than that. And those stories are important for us to understand and to learn and to teach to our children and to be reminded of. But there's so much more to the book of Daniel than those five stories. The difficulty, however, is that the rest of the book of Daniel is hard to understand. It's filled with prophecy and visions and, and uh, uh, things that, that are often written in symbolic language. And yet, if we understand it properly, it will help us to see God's rule over all things, both now and forevermore. And so I hope this morning to introduce the book to us and to just show the overall structure of it, why it was written, and how it will be helpful for us. And then next week we'll get into the body of, of literature beginning in chapter 1. The book of Daniel is named after the prophet Daniel. And as you'll notice here in chapter 9, verse 2, that is written by him as well. Chapter 9, verse 2 says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord. He says the same thing in chapter 10, verse 2, I, Daniel. So he... he cites himself as the author of this book, of this prophecy. And Jesus affirms his authorship in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Daniel records events in this book that take place over the period of time in which he was in exile, that he was taken away from Judah over to Babylon. And these, this book contains... Uh, stories and visions from that 70-year period. We don't know much about Daniel outside of this book other than what he records about himself here. We learn, turn back to chapter 1, we learn that he is of noble birth. Chapter 1, verse 3, he is of noble birth and possibly uh, many scholars believe that he was actually of a royal line, of the royal line, the line of David. Chapter 1, verse 3, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, and so on. And we find out later in chapter 6 that it is Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These four young boys specifically were brought from Judah for the express purpose of serving the king. And apparently, Daniel was of noble birth. He, his parents had a lot of money and very likely, he was also royalty. Some people believe that he was from the line of Zedekiah, King Zedekiah of Judah. It's not clear when Daniel wrote this book, but we do know that he records events that take place around 536 or actually in the year 536 B.C., which was the first year of Darius's reign. That's, we know that from chapter 10, verse 1. So apparently he wrote it sometime after that, probably in the, the, um, the 530-531 uh, range of, of uh, 
the time before Christ. So, let's think about the setting of the book of Daniel because in order for us to understand what's going on in the book, we can pull out stories from different parts of the Bible. We can gain a lot of understanding from those stories and even uh, proper application from those stories. But the best way to study the Scriptures is to study it in its, its biblical context and in, <coughs> excuse me, in its historical context. Um, and so we want to think about it, its historical context. Let's think about Daniel in terms of the whole of Old Testament history. And the way that I like to think about Old Testament history is four main dates. And if you can think about these four dates, then you'll be able to to really uh, drop down in any place in Scripture and know a general idea of who also was was serving during that time. So if you come across, uh, you know, the the time of the Exodus or something and you know these dates, then you'll be able to, to know when that took place. Okay, so first, the first date is 2000 B.C. 2000 B.C. is around the time of Abraham. Abraham was alive, alive during this time. God had promised Abraham that, that through his descendants, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Okay, so that's kind of the first hook or the first date that we think about. We think about the Old Testament, Abraham, 2000 B.C. 500 years later, 1500 B.C. is the time of Moses. Moses led Israel out of Egypt and to the promised land where Joshua would lead Israel in the conquest of Canaan. And this, up until this point, the time of Moses, this was the pinnacle of Old Testament history, of Israel's history. But it would get better. But before it got better, it would have to get worse. Israel, remember, even after they conquered the land of Canaan and and, uh, lived in the land, they, they eventually gave it up. Slowly but surely, they gave up the land that God had promised to them. And that leads us to the time of the judges. And for several centuries, they failed to obey God until God raised up King David. And here's the third date, 1000 B.C. So, 2000 B.C. is whom? Abraham, 1500 B.C., Moses, and 1000 B.C. is David. Okay, So, you have these prominent characters at these important times in history and uh, nothing special about those 500 years intervals, but it's just a helpful way to understand them. In 1000 B.C., David gained all the land of Israel back through battles that had been lost during the time of the judges. But, as all the kings who came, they all died, just as his son Solomon died eventually. And after them, the kingdom of Israel was divided. After Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was divided into two, into Israel and Judah, and the kings during that time were, if we looked at across the whole span of the time from Solomon till the time that the kings were no more, uh, they were generally evil kings. Now, we certainly have some good kings during that time, the godly kings like Hezekiah and Josiah and so on. But, but for the most part, the kings of Israel and Judah were, were evil. They did not do as their father David had done. From the time of Solomon to the time of Daniel is about 500 years. Israel was in decline spiritually. So the the person you can think about for 500 B.C. is probably uh, a little bit closer than Daniel even is Nehemiah. He's the one who helped rebuild the wall there in Jerusalem. So you have 2000 B.C., Abraham, 1500, Moses, 1000, David, and then 500 is Nehemiah. Well, what we're going to talk about is prior to the time of Nehemiah. This is before the rebuilding of the walls. This is during the time when when Judah is taken away from the land of promise, away from Canaan, away from Jerusalem, and to Babylon. And that's what the story of 
Daniel is all about. So really, halfway between David and Nehemiah, what took place was that the northern kingdom of Israel was defeated by Assyria just as God had promised. That they would, go under, they, would, they would be judged by God through Assyria. And for Judah, who is still residing in the land even after Israel has been destroyed and defeated, Judah, the, the southern portion of Israel where Jerusalem was, must have been shocked by that. That Israel had been defeated? Amazing! But we're never going to be defeated. right? We're, we're not going to be captured. We're God's chosen people. We're of God's chosen line. Remember, Solomon's temple resided in Judah, in the city of Jerusalem, and so they must have thought that they were going to be fine. In fact, many of the prophets came along and said, no, you're not fine. God is not happy with your, your sacrifices. And it will be taken away from you. This temple is going to be destroyed along with the rest of the land, and many of you are going to be taken away. And so God sends along prophets like Isaiah in 700 BC, 740 BC, and, and others to warn them that Judah, if you don't trust God, you too are going to be like Israel, that you are going to be captured and destroyed as well. Well, in 609 BC, we're getting closer to the time of the, the book that we're going to study here. In 609 BC, Egypt defeated Judah, and they made Judah become their servants. Daniel, at this time, was probably about 11 years old in 609 B.C. And this meant that Egypt and Judah would have entered into a, what we've talked about before, a suzerain vassal treaty, a suzerainty vassal treaty. This treaty meant that Egypt was the suzerain, the sovereign, and that Judah was the vassal. They were the servants. They had to do what Egypt told them to do. And in return, Egypt would give them protection and would provide for them in some cases. Judah, as the, the servant, the vassal state, was responsible to submit to Egypt and give monetary tribute to them. Well, while this was going on, there was also a worldwide struggle for power between three nations, primarily. It was Egypt and Assyria and Babylon. They were all kind of wrestling for first place. Who is going to be the prominent, the, the prominent empire? Who is going to be the world empire? Babylon especially hated both Egypt and Assyria and wanted to see them destroyed or at least subjected to their rule. And that's exactly what happened only four years after Egypt had conquered Judah. So Judah is underneath the rule of Egypt and what happens is Babylon comes along in order to defeat this great superpower of Egypt they, uh, they destroy them, and as a result, Nebuchadnezzar now has the rights to their vassal, that is, Egypt's vassal, Egypt's servant, which is Judah. And so Nebuchadnezzar, as he's rising to ascension before he was king, um, his father was king at this time. In 605 B.C., the king defeated both the Egyptians and the Syrians. And during this time, the king of Judah, Jehoiakim, was looking for a way out. And amazingly, when Egypt was defeated, this was the perfect opportunity for King Jehoiakim to find his way out. He could switch loyalties. Now he doesn't have to be under the rule of this weak nation of Egypt. Now he can be under a better ruler, one who will provide for him better for them. And so he, he essentially enters into agreement with Babylon 
and um, causing Judah to become subservient to Babylon instead of Egypt. And as a result, Babylon comes in and takes a number of their best men. That's what happened in chapter 1, verse 3. Nebuchadnezzar comes into the land of Judah and effectively defeats them and takes along some of their best young boys, probably teenagers. Daniel and his three friends were among those who were taken from Judah. But shortly thereafter, they were, they were tired. That is Judah as a state. They were tired of Babylon's rule. So King Jehoiakim back in Judah. Okay, Daniel, is, Daniel and his three friends are, are over in Babylon. King Jehoiakim back in Judah is no longer happy with Babylon being his ruler. He's no longer happy that he's taken some of his best young men. And so he starts to rebel against Babylon. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't like this. And King Jehoiakim was mysteriously killed. And he was replaced by his son, Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim with an M and Jehoiakim with an N. Okay, got to keep those straight. Jehoiakim lasted only three months before Nebuchadnezzar had enough with him as well. I mean, Jehoiakim was much like his father. He didn't like the rule of King Nebuchadnezzar over them. And so Nebuchadnezzar had enough with him, captured him, and brought back. Now, in addition to Daniel and his four friends and probably a few others, he now takes King Jehoiakim, the son, along with 10,000 other uh, Israelites, basically Jews, from Judah, and he takes them back to Babylon. This is the main part of the, what we call the exile. They're exiled from their land. They're taken away into captivity. They're captured. And during this time, uh, he destroys the temple and bring back, uh, brings back all these captors along with many of the things that were in the temple, the gold vessels and so on. Nebuchadnezzar was the fulfillment of God's promise of judgment that the prophets had been speaking about. Listen, Judah, if you don't trust God... If you trust in these nations, you will fail and you will be judged. Nebuchadnezzar came along as, as God's instrument of judgment on Judah for rebelling, rebelling against God. And so that's why we call this the Babylonian exile. It's something that lasted for 70 years. Daniel lived throughout all these battles against King Nebuchadnezzar, but God also would use Daniel to point the Babylonian king to God. It's amazing what happens in this book. For Judah, it felt like Babylon was ultimately in control. But notice chapter 2, verse 46. In all this history and this great power of Egypt is even taken underneath the thumb of, of Babylon. And now Babylon is effectively ruling the whole world. And it felt like Babylon was in control. But notice, to whom King Nebuchadnezzar is bowing down. Notice to whom King Nebuchadnezzar is bowing down in chapter 2, verse 46. So Daniel interprets the dream for Nebuchadnezzar and notice what happens after he reveals the dream to him and then interprets it in verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present him to, uh, to him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Who is the king of the greatest empire in the world bowing to? He's bowing to one of his captors. One of these little men from a puny little state who has no power or authority over him. 
And eventually what happens, you know, even though he says these words that your God is, the God, is a God of God, notice a God of God's, not the God of God's, but a God. In chapter 3, remember he sets up this huge 90-foot idol of himself, apparently, and he calls everybody to bow down to it. So he hasn't been converted at this point. But notice what happens in chapter 4, because eventually God does change his heart. Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every nation that live, or every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. So that tells you how how large the scope of his rule is, right? To every people, nation, and language on the earth. Verse two: It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. So this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking, and he says in verse three: How great are his signs, and how mighty are his wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And His dominion is from generation to generation. If we were to go on and read through the end of that chapter, we see uh, verse 34, chapter 4. He talks about the time in which God humbled him for seven years. He was made to eat like an animal, to eat grass and to graze with the cows effectively. And now notice what He says, Verse 34, But at the end of that period, that seven-year period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. In other words, I became sane again. He, he was insane, effectively. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? For Judah, Babylon looked like the most powerful nation in the entire world. And God brings their king to His knees. Has Him walk around on all fours like an animal. And after seven years of being humbled, He recognizes the true God as the Lord overall. And he becomes converted, I believe. Nebuchadnezzar is speaking the way a believer speaks here. And he recognizes that God is the true God and that his rule is nothing. Remember the reason that God did this, or the kind of the final linchpin, the final straw that eventually got, caused God to, to break the, his, the camel's back, so to speak, is that he said, you know, look at all this great kingdom that I have made. And at that time, God made him insane and took his kingdom away from him. Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 B.C. and his empire would begin to fade. And then in 539, not too many decades after, just a few decades, 23 years later, his empire would completely collapse under his children and grandchildren. And so Babylon, this great superpower that ruled over the whole world, was now brought to its knees and now was being ruled by the Medes and the Persians. They took over as the world empire. And so we have this time for Judah of great testing and great tragedy that they are taken away from their land. And even after the Babylonian empire is, has faded and has been completely annihilated, has been taken out of their hands, the power has been taken out of their hands, Judah's still far away from home. They're now under the rule of the Medes and the Persians. And during this time, it was a time of tragedy and testing, but it was also a great time of God speaking. You have prophets speaking like Jeremiah, of course Daniel, as we're going to see, Ezekiel, Habakkuk, and others are prophesying during this time. 
So that gives us a little bit of a historical context so that you can kind of, uh, kind of take Daniel and put it on one of these hooks in the timeline of the Old Testament history. Now let's think about its purpose. Why was this book written? I think there are three primary purposes for Daniel writing this book. The first is to show God's faithfulness. To show God's faithfulness to His people even when they're being judged for their sin. Right? It's not, God doesn't take His people and say, listen, you have rejected Me and you have defied Me and so because of that, I'm going to leave you alone. I'm going to leave you alone to be judged. No, God is actually with them during the exile, uh, particularly those who are trusting in Him. Secondly, to show us what faithfulness looks like. To show us as believers what it looks like to, to live faithful lives in a faithless culture. You ever feel like you live that kind of life, right? That, that, that we live in a faithless culture. A culture that's getting farther and farther away from a proper understanding of who God and who Christ is and what He's come to do. And yet, you need to live within that kind of culture. You need to be faithful to God even though you live far away from what God had designed. Like for Judah, they're, they're far away from you know, where everything was safe and right. You had the temple. They could do the sacrifices. Now they're far away from that and they have to live in a pagan land in the same way that they lived before. That is, worshiping God, being faithful to Him, obeying Him. And that I think this book teaches us how to do that. And I think it will be a helpful um, application for us as we study this book. The third purpose, I think, is to show us what will happen in the end times. So, to show God's faithfulness, to show how to live faithfully in a faithless culture, and then to show us what will happen in the end times. The book of Daniel is just full of end times prophecies. It tells us what is going to happen in the end. And we actually learn a lot about what's going to happen in the end time from the book of Daniel. Without this book, our understanding of the end times would be incomplete. Now, thankfully, we have other books that teach us a lot about the end times, but Daniel fills in a lot of details that we don't have anywhere else. We learn a lot more about the Messiah's first coming, and we learn a lot more about the rise of the Antichrist. We learn a lot more about the second coming of Christ. We learn about the fall of the Antichrist, the establishment of Christ's kingdom. We, we learn about the resurrection of the Old Testament saints in Daniel chapter 12. And then we learn about God's great white throne judgment. So all of these things in the end times, we have pieces of them in other parts of the Bible, but Daniel is important for our understanding of it. So Daniel helps us in, in order to show us God's faithfulness, how we should live faithfully in a faithless culture, and more details about the end times. Now there's, before we get to the, the uh, theme and what I think the book is trying to answer, there is one unusual feature about the book that you may not know, and, and I actually had forgotten about this, but I had to be reminded as I was studying through, and that is that chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic. The rest of the Old Testament primarily is written in what language? Hebrew, right? Okay, there are a couple parts. I think it's Ezekiel that has some parts in Aramaic. But Daniel has a large section, chapters 2 through 7, written in Aramaic, written to the common language of the people, of the Gentiles, really. And then chapters 1 and chapter 8, 8 through 12, chapters 8 through 12, are written in Hebrew. So, the language of the Jews. And Daniel doesn't explain why he switches. He just switches midstream. Chapter 2, verse 4 is where he changes. 
And if you look in the margin of your Bible at chapter 2, verse 4, it will probably give you uh, some indication of that. Um, but he doesn't explain why he switches from Hebrew to Aramaic back to Hebrew. Most likely, he has two audiences in mind. He's designing this, this book to be read by both Jews and Gentiles, that we both ought to learn from God's rule, not only over the, the nation of the Jews, but over all nations. And that he wants to show that God rules over all. But he has a special rule over the Jewish nation. That's what we'll come to see, especially in the last five chapters, chapters 8 through 12. So the book of Daniel is, is really about who is in control. Who, who really is in control? Because we have the rise and fall of all these empires. And you have Egypt before the time of Daniel. Then you have Babylon. And it just feels like, man, this is going to be forever. This is going to be an eternal kingdom. And then they're gone after Nebuchadnezzar dies a few decades after. And then you have the Medes and the Persians rise up. And like, who, who is the real king? Who really is in control? Turn to chapter 4 because Nebuchadnezzar thinks he is the great king. Chapter 4. And here's what he says in chapter 4, verse 29. Uh, well, this is actually commentary on what he's going to say. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have, have built as a royal re- residence by the might of my power, and for the glory of my majesty. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. So Nebuchadnezzar thinks he is the great king, and many of his servants likely think that he is the great king. Obviously, as we see them all bowing down to him, save the the three friends of Daniel. Turn to chapter 5, verse 2, because we see that Belshazzar thinks he is the great king. Chapter 5, verse 1, Belshazzar the king held a great feast for thousands of his nobles and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Here's a huge party for a thousand of his, his, uh, his privileged guests and he says, hey, this is a really special occasion. Let's bring out those special gold vessels that were taken from the God of Judah. And let's bring them out and and we'll drink wine from them and get drunk from them and all sorts of other immoral activity was going on apparently as well. Belshazzar thinks that God has no control over him. That That God is not the king, but that Belshazzar is the king. Now turn to chapter 11 because it's not just in history that these men think that they're the great king. But also in the future, we have this king who will come and he will think that he is the God of gods. Chapter 11, verse 36. This is talking about the second half of the tribulation, the second three and a half years. And it's talking about the king who is over that worldwide empire and we know him as the Antichrist. Then the king, the Antichrist, will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. 
and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. Who does the little horn of the Antichrist think is the god of gods? He thinks he is. He's rejecting all the gods of the world and he's rejecting the God of gods, the middle of verse 36 says. He will speak blasphemous things. We know more detail from Revelation that he actually sets up within the temple a likeness of himself and and demands that all people worship this image of him. All these kings, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, the little horn or the Antichrist think that they are the great king at the time in which they reign. But what they don't acknowledge, except Nebuchadnezzar eventually, is that all of their authority is derived authority. That is, it is given to them by God for a time. All of their authority is only temporary authority. And that's why every single one of those kings that we've just looked at, and all the kings of human history, their kingdoms will come to an end. But there is one king who has an unending kingdom. Turn to chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 13. Let's see if we can find what his name is. Chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel sees this vision. He says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Now, that sounds very familiar to Nebuchadnezzar at the beginning of chapter 4. It was all of the nations, all the people, all the languages served him, but there was a difference. Because Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom eventually end, even, ended, even though it was a worldwide kingdom. But notice this kingdom in verse 14 that they might serve him, all these people. His dominion or his rule is an everlasting rule which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So, we have two. Names in verse 13. And let's, think of, let's try to think of who these two names refer to. First, the Son of Man, and second, the Ancient of Days. Who are we talking about there? The Son of Man is Jesus, and the Ancient of Days is God the Father. Okay, so the God the Father, the Ancient of Days, hands off the keys to the kingdom, the, the keys of the kingdom to the Son. And he says, Here you go, this is your kingdom. This is going to be an everlasting kingdom which will not end. All the other kings of the world, although they may seem powerful and superior to us, their kingdoms will all come to an end. And even the greatest kingdom that will ever come on the earth until after His time, the the kingdom of the Antichrist, His kingdom will also come to an end, but not the Son of Man. So we have in the book of Daniel the story of historic kings who rose to power, and just as quickly as they rise to power, they fall. Their kingdoms are taken away from them. And we have the prediction of the greatest fallen king who will ever rule the world, world, the little horn, and he will rise to power 
very quickly, amazingly, in three and a half years. And yet, falls spectacularly in three and a half years as well. And so the theme of Daniel is this. Because God's kingdom cannot fail, we must be faithful to God even in a faithless culture. Because the kingdom of God cannot fail, we must be faithful to God in a faithless culture. Let me show you the first part of that theme that I I think is is something that, that runs throughout the book of Daniel. The first part of it is, God's kingdom cannot fail. Turn back to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 20. Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to Him. It is He who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. These kings don't rise on their own power. They're not falling because of someone else's power. They're falling because of God's power. They're rising to power because of God's. That's what Daniel says. He's the one who, who changes the times and the epochs. He's the one who remove it, removes kings and establishes another one. That's God. Skip down to verse 44. Chapter 2, verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms but it will itself endure forever. This is the dream that Daniel is interpreting and God has told Daniel that this, is, this means that all these kingdoms will be destroyed and yet there's going to be this rock that grows up like a mountain to fill up the whole earth and that is Christ's eternal kingdom. Turn over to chapter 4, verse 34. I want to continue to show you here that God's kingdom cannot fail. We saw these verses earlier second part of verse 34, chapter 4, verse 34. second part says, For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. But He does according to His will in the host of heaven. This is Nebuchadnezzar acknowledging God's universal and eternal rule that His dominion will be everlasting, non-ending. Turn to chapter 7. Chapter 7, here's another vision from God to Daniel, chapter 7, verse 25. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one, speaking of the Antichrist. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. It's just a way that Daniel says three and a half years. A time, times and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment and His dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people, the saints of the highest one. His kingdom, God's kingdom, will be an everlasting kingdom. And all the dominions will serve and obey Him. The question is, who is the real king? And what Daniel teaches us is that God is the true king. All the other kings that have ever lived and whoever will live are only temporary and they all get their authority from God. Like Isaiah's prophecy teaches us in chapter 40, verse 15, the nations to God are like dust on the what? They're like dust on the scales. They're not very uh, 
God's not very fearful of what the dust is going to do to him. He simply blows and, it, and they're gone. That's what the nations are like to God. We feel like they are all powerful and, and that we can't get out from under their rule. God's saying, they'll all fade. They'll all go away. They've only risen because of my authority and they will fall because of my authority. So that's the first part of the theme. God's kingdom cannot fail. The second part is, therefore, we must be faithful to God within a faithless culture. Turn to chapter 11. The saints during the tribulation give us a good example of how we ought to think about God and how we ought to live faithfully to God despite living in a faithless culture. Chapter 11. Let's begin in verse 29 just to get the context. At, that, at the appointed time, He will return and come into the south, but this last time it will not turn away out the way that it did before. For ships of Katim will come against Him. Therefore, He will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So He will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from Him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice and they will set up the abomination of desolation. Who is this talking about? The Antichrist. He's going to come at the midpoint of the tribulation. He's going to be really frustrated with people who are not submitting to Him. And He's going to set up for Himself a false god, a god of Himself, uh, uh, an image of Himself in the temple at the midpoint. That's what's called the abomination of desolation. Verse 32, By smooth words He will turn to godlessness, those who act wickedly toward the covenant, and here's where we draw encouragement of how to live faithfully in a faithless culture. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. This book gives us examples, not just of the believers during the, the tribulation, but also, think about it, Daniel and his three friends in chapters 1-6. through six, As they go through all this opposition and, and are trying to be merged into the culture. They're trying to be... Uh, uh, the, the culture is trying to transform them. And Daniel says, no, we're not going to eat the king's meat. The three friends say, no, we're not going to bow to the statue. Daniel says, no, I'm not going to stop praying. Right? And so we have people who are used as examples, godly people who are used as examples within a pagan culture, a faithless culture, and yet they stand up faithfully for the sake of God, no matter what the consequences might be. And that's something that we're going to learn as we go through this book. So let me just encourage you with a few um, points of application as we close today. First, fear fear the ultimate king. Fear the ultimate king. If you believe that this life is all that there is to offer, then fear the earthly rulers that are over you or that are over other parts of the world. Fear them. But if you're a Christian, you need to fear the ultimate king. That doesn't mean you need to be cocky or arrogant when you stand before a human ruler whom God has put in charge over you. But it does mean that those rulers, no matter how fearful they may be to us, are only temporary. That they are used by God to accomplish His purposes within this world whether that be your boss as your ruler or your governor or your president, their power is not inherent power. Do you believe that? Their power is derived power. It's derived from God's authority and it will only last for a time. 
And also keep in mind that the worst thing that any of those rulers can do to you is to kill your body. But remember what Jesus said? Don't fear Him who can only kill your body. In other words, who are at, at the very worst, the very worst that they could possibly do to you is they could take your life. But who ought we to fear? We ought to fear the one who can kill both body and soul in hell forever. That's what Jesus said. Fear the ultimate King. Fear God above all. He is the King of kings. And no one can match His greatness. And no one deserves the amount of reverence and fear that God deserves. Fear Him above all else. Second and final encouragement this morning is God loves when His people are uncompromising in their obedience to Him. God loves when His people are uncompromising in their obedience to Him. Daniel and his three friends are a great example for us. They show us how to be faithful in a faithless culture. And the result was that God gave Daniel a long and prosperous life under the rule of many kings. And he served in many of their courts. But just because God gave Daniel a long life, God doesn't necessarily promise us a long life. That, that is, that we will have a really long life if we don't compromise. Because we know from the rest of the Bible that, that, that we have examples of lots of people who didn't compromise as followers of God and yet died young. Can you think of any? Like John the Baptist, right? And James. And Peter. Name off almost every other disciple. Hundreds of others in addition to that. And Jesus himself. So just because we are uncompromising in a faithless culture doesn't guarantee a long life like Daniel's going to get. We have modern day examples of people who didn't compromise and died young like Jim Elliot. But the point of our life, friends, is not survival. It is faithfulness. It is faithfulness to God. God will determine if you die young or serve him until you're old like Daniel. And our job is not to determine how long our days are. Our job is to be uncompromising no matter how long God gives us. Even within a faithless culture, we're going to be faithful to you, God, all the way until the end. This is a great book that I'm excited to study with you about disputed sovereignty. Who is the real king? But friends, this is only an apparent dispute. We know who the real king is. We know who the real sovereign is. Charles Wesley was a great missionary of the 1700s. He was the 18th child of Samuel and Susanna's uh, 19 children. The 19 kids and counting long before TLC. But Charles Wesley captured the idea of the book of Daniel pretty well when he wrote, His kingdom cannot fail. He rules over earth and heaven. The keys of death and hell are to our Jesus given. Lift up your heart. Lift up your voice. Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we are privileged to serve You as the King of all kings. And one day it will be clear who the real King is when Jesus reigns on this earth. We pray that You would send that day quickly. Send our Savior to to take us home. What joy 
and delight should we go without dying where there will be no sickness, no sadness, no tears, or no crying. Caught up in the clouds to receive the Lord forever we will be glorified and with Him and with You, our Father. Lord, we pray that You would send that day quickly. Until that time, help us to be faithful in this faithless culture in which we live. We pray for help as we study through this book together. In Jesus' name, Amen.